If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, it's right before the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And when you have found Job, find Job chapter number 23. It's one of the greatest chapters in the book. It's one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. One morning last week, I received a text message from a friend, and he was wishing me a good day, and he was sharing with me some of the verses from Job chapter 23. And one of the verses, which we're going to look at this morning, I have had in my mind ever since I got that text. I just can't get it out of my mind. Now, Job 23, along with the entire book of Job, is about the problem of human suffering. That's what this book is about. And that's something that we can relate to because all of us struggle and suffer in life one way or another. Sometimes we have major struggles and sometimes we have minor struggles, but nonetheless, we struggle. I heard about a man who was on a diet. And he was struggling to lose weight. And he would pray, God, help me lose weight. And he had changed his diet. He was exercising. He had lost about 15 pounds. And he was driving to work one day, and he saw a donut shop about 50 yards down the road on the right. And he thought, man, if I could just have a nice hot donut, a cup of hot chocolate, that would be the best thing in the world. But he knew he was on a diet, and that wasn't on his diet. And so he prayed. And he said, God, if it would be your will for me to break my diet and have a hot donut and some hot chocolate, I pray that when I get to the donut shop, there would be an open parking spot right in front of the front door. And if there is, I'm going to take that as a sign from you that I can go in there and have a donut. That was his prayer. Well, sure enough, after seven times around the block, there was a spot. And he said, God has spoken. And he went, so he was struggling with his diet, the battle of the bulge. And, you know, that's not a major struggle, but he was nonetheless struggling. Now, some people here today are struggling with something a lot bigger than that. Since we were together last Sunday, I have talked to people in our church who are struggling with serious stuff. I called one young lady and her father, who's been a member of our church for several years, last week, suddenly, unexpectedly went to be with the Lord. And so she's struggling with that, the shock of that and the grief of that. I talked to another lady in our church this past week. She texted me, John, could you please call me? I need to talk to you. And I did. She's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. I talked to, uh, I didn't actually get to talk to her, but I noticed last week that we had one of our most faithful longtime members who was in the hospital and she had to have part of her leg amputated last week. And so she's struggling with that. Now, when we come to the book of Job, uh, we read about a man who was struggling. And when people are struggling with things like that, when any of us are struggling with things like that, we ask God, where are you? And what are you doing in my life? That was the question Job had. God, where are you? And what are you doing in my life? It's interesting. This past week, as I was thinking about Job and just couldn't get it off my mind, I went back to the beginning of the book and I read the first chapter and I read part of the second chapter, just reorienting myself with some of the things that Job was struggling with, some of the suffering that he was experiencing. Listen to what Job lost in a relatively short amount of time. You talk about suffering. This is big time suffering. He lost his possessions. He lost his source of income. He lost his children. He, had, he and his wife had 10 kids and they were all killed on the same day unthinkable, unimaginable, and it happened to him. He lost his health, and then if all that weren't bad enough, 
He lost his reputation within the community because up until this point, everybody had recognized Job as a fearless, blameless, godly man. But when these calamities came into his life, his friends turned on him and said, Job, there must be some secret sin in your life because God would not allow anybody to go through this unless he were disciplining them, punishing them for their sin. What gives with you, Job? What are you hiding from the rest of us? Job wasn't hiding anything, but when all this happened, he lost his reputation. Let me, re, let me just review that list again. His possessions, we would say today our house, our car, our bank account. His source of income, he couldn't replace that because his source of income was gone. His kids, his health, and his reputation. And if anybody ever said, God, where are you? God, what in the world is going on in my life? It was old Job. Now, in Job chapter 23, look in verse number three. We read this is what Job said. He said, oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Job is saying, if I could just find God, I would go into his presence and I would say, God, this is not right. This is not fair. You should never have allowed this to happen. That's how Job felt, and that's how some of you might feel today. Look in verse 8. He said, look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Job says, I've looked everywhere for God, up, down, right, left, and I can't find God. I see no evidence of God's leadership in my life. I don't understand what is happening to me. And we would say, at his lowest low, at the end of verse 9, he made one of the highest confessions of faith in all the Bible. Verse 10 is our focus today. It is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Job said this, but he knows the way that I take. In other words, Job was saying, I don't know the way that I take. I can't understand what's happening in my life, but God knows. And Job's saying, I find comfort in knowing that God knows the way that I take. And look at the next phrase. When he has tested me, I shall come forth is gold. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, let it be Job 23.10, right here that we're looking at today. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job had enough sense, even though he didn't understand what was happening, he had enough sense to know that he was being tested. And he knew that God was up to something, even though he didn't know what God was up to. And he felt like at the end of the test, he would be purified better and stronger than he was before the test. He said, I shall come forth as gold. Now, again, my friend sent the text, and this was the verse that he quoted, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, here's what I've been thinking all week. What did Job mean by gold? When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Well, certainly he didn't mean that literally. He didn't mean he was going to come forth as a, as a precious metal. What did he mean? He's using this word gold metaphorically, and he's saying just like gold is tested, just like gold is purified and heated up, Job said, that's what's happening to me. I'm being testified. I'm walking through the fire, and the same thing's going to happen to me that happens to gold. I'm going to be purified. Now, I don't know how much you know about gold being heated up and refined and purified. I've had 
forever, I guess, like you, a general idea that the goldsmith takes this gold substance and puts it in either a crucible or in some other container, and it is heated up. But I didn't realize until I prepared this sermon that gold has to be heated up to 1948 degrees Fahrenheit before it will melt. I learned this. Gold cannot be destroyed in the heating process. Can't be destroyed, but it can be melted, and it is melted. At 1948 degrees, the solid gold turns into a liquid. And when that happens, the liquid is placed into a crucible of some kind where it is further heated up, and the goldsmith, having to be careful because of the heat, goes and looks at that gold and takes an instrument, and he begins to skim the impurities, the dross, the imperfections off of that gold. Gold has imperfections that are hidden until they're heated. But once those imperfections are heated, the goldsmith can just go scrape them or skim them off the top, heat it up a little more and scrape them and skim them off the top. Again, I want to make that statement. The impurities and imperfections are hidden to the naked eye. You can't see that that gold had any impurities, but when it's heated up, you can see it. When pressure is applied to that gold, what happens? The impurities rise to the top. And that's when the goldsmith can just skim it right off and all he has left is pure gold. Now, the Bible is saying when Job said, I shall come forth as gold, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm being heated up. I don't know if he knew about 1948 degrees, but he knew he was being heated up. And he knew that God was scraping out of his life out of his heart, out of his mind, out of his character, out of his fate, he knew that God was scraping out all the impurities that did not belong. Now, with that in mind, I want to kind of turn that on us today and say, hopefully here, nobody has lost all of what Job's lost. Hopefully, you've not lost any of what Job has lost. And yet, I know this, whether it's here in Pasadena or anywhere else I might be today, and for those listening, if you've got this many people in a room, there are people suffering in one way or the another. And what I'm saying to you today is that God is using your suffering, or at least he wants to, to get rid of all the impurities in your life. Now, let's think about that. You say, John, what is God in the process? I'm, I'm going, you might say, I'm going through something. I don't understand it. What is God in the process of burning out of my life? What's he trying to skim off and out of my life? The first thing God is doing, he is purifying your faith. Now, faith all through the Bible is very important. Faith is the most important subject in the Bible. Without faith, we cannot please God. We're saved by faith. Faith is everything in the Bible. Faith connects us to God. We walk by faith and not by sight. And yet, sometimes our faith has impurities in it that we're not even aware of. It's not perfect. It's not as strong as God would want it to be. Faith, the Bible tells us, always leads to peace. Now, think about this. If your faith is, is, is filled with impurities and it's weak and it's shaky, what does that mean? It means your peace is going to be shaky. Faith and peace are like parallel railroad tracks. They always run together. If you have perfect faith, strong faith, you're going to have strong peace. If you've got shaky 50% faith, you're going to have 50% peace. If you have no faith, you'll have no peace. So sometime when I'm talking to somebody and they say, you know, John, I just don't have any area. I'm thinking about my marriage, my kids, my finances, my health, my future, my job, all of it. I don't have any peace. And I can say to that person, the degree to which you have peace or don't have peace is directly linked 
with your faith. Faith and peace always run together. So God says, you can't see the hidden impurities in your faith, but I can. And God says, what I've got to do is allow you to go through some testing, some heat, some trials, some suffering. And in that process, what you can't see now will come to the surface. This is what I've always said. Trials and difficulties in life, it's not, it is true that they purify us. That's the whole sermon today. They pur- but before they purify us, they reveal what's going on in our life. And the first thing that God wants to do is he wants to purify your faith. Now think about this. You still listen? Say amen. I want to make sure we're still together here. Say, John, you say impurities in my faith. What, what specifically are you talking about? Doubt, worry, fear, anxiety, frustration, being overwhelmed, being uptight, being nervous, being stressed out. How much money would you pay or how much would you love it if you could go through an entire week with none of those hindrances in your faith and in your mind? A whole seven days, no, no time worrying, no time fearful, no time anxious, that feeling that we sometimes get, I'm just overwhelmed and I can't have it. But if that could be burned out of our lives and God could purify our faith, and now instead of saying, oh my goodness, it's so much, I can't handle it, I'm sinking, I'm going under, we could say by faith, no, I'm not going under. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What would you give to live a life with none of those hindrances in your life? Well, God says, I want to give you more than a week. I want to give you a lifetime of of life like that. But in order for that to happen, I've got to get these impurities out of your faith. Now, go to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, if you would. I want to show you two verses. 1 Peter is towards the end of the New Testament, but Peter is writing his letter to a group of Christians who are scattered all around the world, and they're, you're talking about suffering. They're being persecuted. Some of them are being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes a letter to encourage them. And in chapter 1, in verse 6, notice what he says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, remember this, suffering's only temporary, won't last forever. If now for a little while, if need be, not only is it temporary, but it's necessary It is necessary that we go through some of these challenging experiences in life. You have been grieved by various trials. That word various literally means multicolored. I may go through one type of trial or have been through certain types of trials. You may go through different types of trials. But a trial is a trial. Suffering is suffering. Pain is pain. They're not the same for all of us. But in verse 7, he tells us why he allows us to go through this. So that, and my Bible just says that, The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. See, Peter saying what Job was saying, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us in that verse the reason we go through trials, so that the the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that you would be able to stand in the presence of God today and on that great day when we step out in eternity and see Him, and you would have a faith that has been purified of doubt, worry, fear, anxiety, frustration, and all those other things that I have mentioned and more. And so the first thing that God is doing 
He is purifying our faith. He's wanting to burn those things out. Now, remember what I said about when gold is heated up, those impurities were hidden until they were heated. But when they're heated, now everybody can see them. You may be going through a trial. I've been through situations like this before, and I say, God, I've never struggled with anxiety. I just, that's something I've never struggled with, and now I'm, I am struggling with it. You know what I think God says in response to that? God says, no, you may never have on the conscious level struggled with anxiety, but it was there all along. It was hidden. It was coming out in different ways, just not in the traditional sense. And now that the, that the circumstances of your life have been heated up, now it's coming to the surface and now you can see it. So it was there all along. It wasn't doing you any good. I just allowed the fire to get hotter so you could see what I have seen all along. So now we can address the anxiety. Now that could be true of fear, of worry, frustration, being overwhelmed, any of it. Until it's heated, it's hidden. But once it's heated, it comes to the surface, and now we can see clearly what we're dealing with. In other words, if I have hidden anxiety and not even aware that I have it, well, I can't, I'm not going to deal with something. I'm not going to deal with a problem that I don't even think I have. But if God allows that to surface, now I say, okay, God, we got done some, we're dealing with something now I didn't even know that I needed to deal with. And so the first area where that is going to happen is in our faith. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And the first thing he was talking about was in his faith, a purity of faith so that he could honor God even though he didn't understand what God was allowing into his life. But there's more than just faith. God in those suffering, difficult, testing times of life is not just purifying our faith. God is also purifying our character. Our character. Augustine said character is what a person is in the dark. Character is not what I am when everybody's looking at me. Character is what I am when home when nobody's looking at me. Character is not what you are in church on Sunday morning. Character is what you are at home on Friday night. Character is what you are and what, what I am when nobody is around. And God wants to purify our character and make us more like Jesus. Now, turn back a few books in the New Testament to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. Romans 8, one of the great, maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And I want us to look at verse 28, maybe the greatest verse Maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible. My favorite verse changes from time to time, and probably yours does too. But Romans 8.28 is a verse that we all claim and quote and hang on to when we're going through difficult times. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That has given all of us here comfort through the years. <laughs> We've gone through things. They say, God, I don't understand, but I do believe you're working all things to good. Does it say all things are good? Some things are bad, but God can take the good, the bad, and the ugly and mix it together and bring good out of it. Now, here's how we normally interpret Romans 8, 28. Here's how we apply that in our own lives. If, for example, we say, well, I've lost my job, but God's going to bring all, make all things work together for good. Therefore, that means God has a better job in store for me. Well, that's probably true, but that's not what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. You may say, well, I've lost my, 
I've lost uh, my health. And so Romans 8, 28 means that God's going to give my health back to me. Well, God can do that. We'll pray God will do that. He's certainly capable of doing that. I would certainly pray and believe for that, but that's not what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. You say, well, I've got a friend and my friend has hurt me somehow and now we're not friends anymore. May, you know, and you say, well, I guess that means God's going to give me a, a new and better friend. Probably he will, but that's not what Romans 8, 28. When Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good, if your house, somebody's house burns down. And they say, well, my house burned down. All things work together for good. I'm going to get a better house. Well, probably that will happen, but that's not what is being talked about in Romans 8, 28. The good talked about in Romans 8, 28 is defined in Romans 8, 29. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, God knew us before we were born. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good that God wants to bring into all of our lives when we go through difficulty is that through that difficulty, we would become more like Christ. Christ-likeness. That is, if somebody says, what is spiritual maturity? It's Christ-likeness. What is the purpose of discipleship? Christ-likeness. What's the purpose of coming to church, opening our Bible, studying what God says so we'll be more like Christ? Now, here's the question. What does it mean to be Christ-like? Does it mean if Jesus is six feet tall, we all need to be six feet tall? Or if Jesus had long brown hair, then we all need to have long, or if Jesus had brown eyes, I want to be like Christ. I need to, get, I, I wish I had a different color. No. Christ-likeness doesn't mean that in our physical body, we become a twin of Jesus. Christ-likeness means that in our hearts, in our character, the real us, that we have those same qualities that Jesus had in his life. Now, I've thought about this all week, you know, Christ, to be like Christ, to be like Jesus. What does that mean? And I could have made a list of 20 or 30 or more things of, of what Christ-likeness is, but I want to show you, share with you four different qualities that Christ-likeness involves and what it means to be like Christ. And I wish you'd just jot these down. First of all, Christ-likeness means that our lives are characterized by holiness. The thing that characterized Jesus' life as much as anything else was his holiness. And for those of us who are saved, the Bible says that we're to be holy like he is holy. Let, let me just say it. This, I know we're all sinners. We, none of us are perfect. We all mess up. I get it. I mess up. We all mess up. But the, even that being said, sin does not fit in the life of the believer. It's not consistent with who we are. It grieves the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And I think sometimes we have this thing, well, we're all sinners, nobody's perfect. And I think we use that as an excuse to be, to live a sloppy Christian life. Sin has no place in our lives. And yet we do sin. I sin more than I wish I did. Even now I still sin. I wish I didn't. But when I sin, there's guilt, there's shame led by, followed by confession and, and hopefully repentance, turning away from sin. But our lives need to be characterized by holiness. Now, before we go to the next word, let me just ask this question. As you think about your life, is there any sin in your life right now, any thought process, any attitude, any habit, any activity that you're, is there any sin in your life right now that doesn't fit a child of God? And if there is, I would encourage you today. You know, the Bible says whoever, uh, 
covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Just, we have to do, we all have to do the same thing on this point. We have to just confess and ask God to help us to be holier going forward and help us not to sin. But the first thing that we need to pursue, the Bible says pursue holiness. We may never fully get there, not perfectly, we certainly won't, but we should all be pursuing holiness. Now, the second word that is so important, this is one of the things God wants to work in our lives. You would have expected holiness, right? Everybody would expect that. But the second thing God wants to work in our lives is happiness, happiness. Now, turn just a few pages. You're in Romans. Go now to the book of Hebrews. Go to the right and find Hebrews chapter 1. This is an interesting verse. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9, God, the Father, is talking to Jesus, his son. And he's quoting, actually, Psalm 45. Psalm 45 was an Old Testament psalm about Jesus, a messianic psalm. But here in the New Testament, God applies it clearly to Jesus. If you look at verse 8, it says, but to the son, he says, that is God says. And look what he says in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. In other words, God the Father, when he looked down from heaven and watched Jesus live his life, God says this. God says, Jesus, I have noticed, I'm so proud of you, you're holy, you love righteousness, and you hate lawlessness. But look at the next part of the verse. Therefore, as a result of your holiness, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, don't miss that. God said, Jesus, because you're holy, I'm going to place a special anointing on your life. And this anointing is known as the oil, the anointing, and I'm going to use oil, the oil of gladness. In other words, notice this. There's a connection between holiness and happiness. Think of it this way. The holier you, the more you pursue holiness the happier that you're going to be. It would have been interesting years and years ago when Jesus was on the earth, if we would have been living at that time, if we could have gone to Galilee and spent one week with Jesus and the 12 disciples and watched Jesus walk on water, feed the multitude, heal the sick, teach the Sermon on the Mount, all the things that Jesus did, if we could have eaten meals with Jesus and the 12 disciples, Everywhere they went, we went. When they pitched their tent on the Mount of Olives, we pitched our tent on the Mount of Olives. And we, we slept right there in that same area at night. And we were together for a whole week. And at the end of that week, if we could have come back to Texas, of course, Texas wasn't here back then, so that wouldn't have been, but play like it would have been, that we would have lived. We could have come back here, and our friends and family would have said, what was it like to be with Jesus for a week? Oh, man. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, we would have described what he did. Healed people, walked on water. Fed multitudes, gave a great sermon, unbelievable. What about the Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Nathaniel, all of them? I'm telling you what, those guys, they are committed to their cause. They, they committed to God. They are following him. It was just the most amazing experience. I think one of the things we would have said as we tried to describe to people in Texas what it was like to be in Israel with Jesus and with those disciples, I think we would have noticed something that you may never have thought about, and I never had till I read this, read this verse years ago. We would have noticed that Jesus was happier than the other disciples. Because notice what it says. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In other words, because Jesus was living a holier life, Jesus was living a happier life, and he had the oil of gladness. Let me say this to everyone listening today in this room and at home. As children of God, we should be happy. Got two people to say amen to that. We've got 700 people in here, and two people said amen. Let me back it up and try it again, because even if you're not happy, you know it's true. As children of God, we should be happy. We should be happy. David said in Psalm 4 in verse 7, you have placed gladness in my heart. Now, you know David wasn't perfect. Good night. We know his sins. And yet David was a man after God's own heart. It's not our sinlessness because none of us are sinless. It's our heart. And if our heart is bent toward God, if we are pursuing holiness, God is going to place an anointing on our lives. And that anointing is known as the anointing with the oil of gladness. And God wants us to be glad. And yet, how many truly happy people do you know? You say, John, are you always happy? No, I'm not. Sometimes I'm unhappy. Sometimes I have a bad day. We're human. But I'm saying this, in my own life, for, as a general rule, yes, I'm happy. Not every moment of every day. Not, I mean, things ruffle my feathers too. But as a general and our lives should be happy. And our lives should be filled with gladness. I heard about a man who loved God and he wanted to be a more devoted servant of God. And so he did something very extreme he became a monk and joined a monastery. Now, that's about as extreme as you can get, right? And when he did that, he took a vow of silence. And as part of his vow of silence, he could only speak two words a year. Two words a year. So there he is in the monastery, and the first year was over. And his supervisor called for him, and the supervisor said, you've been a good monk all year long. You haven't said a word, but now your time is up. Your first year is up, and you're allowed to speak two words. What would you like to say to me? And he said these two words, bed hard. <laughs> Supervisor said, that's fine. Go back to your quarters. We'll talk again next year. Twelve months went by. He came back. Supervisor said, you survived the second year. What would you like to say? You have two words. What would you like to say? He said, food bad. <laughs> Go back. And talking to, they did it another year. He came back. Supervisor said, you have two words. After your third year, what would you like to say? He said, room cold. I said, fine, go back, and we'll talk again. At the end of the fourth year, he came back. So I said, you've made it for four years. You've only spoken six words. He said, now you get two more words. What would you like to say? And the monk said, I quit. <laughs> Supervisor said, good. All you've done is complain since you've got here. <laughs> you know, I think God would say to some of us who are saved, all you've done is complain since you've got saved. Nothing's right with you. You're not happy. You're not glad. Friend, let me say that again. Nobody's always happy and nobody's always glad, myself included. But as a general rule, our lives should be characterized not by complaining, not by unhappiness, not by being in a bad mood. Our lives as a whole should be characterized by happiness, joy, and gladness. And that's what God wants to give us. And he said to Jesus, he said, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And he'll do that for you if you pursue holiness with all of your life. Now, first word is holiness. God wants to make us like Jesus. Christ-likeness, holiness, happiness. Let me give you the third word, kindness. Ephesians 4.32 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so God wants us to be kind one to another. You know, one of the concerns that I have in in the day in which we live is that kindness. I, I worry about this for the church globally. I, I certainly worry about this for the church nationally, is that we seem to be replacing kindness and love in Christianity with militance and with meanness. I heard this morning on the radio when I first got up, they were saying that across America, many churches in urban areas are being closed. These churches don't have anybody coming to them anymore. And they're they, they, they shutting the doors. They're having to rent out the facilities and, and uh, the churches are being closed. And the same thing is happening in America that 75 years ago happened in Europe. Maybe 50 years ago happened in Europe. Europe had all these huge churches and cathedrals that at one time were filled with men and women and young people and they were praising God and they were studying the Bible and yet largely because of liberalism that infiltrated the universities and the seminaries and that liberalism caused preachers who had sat under that to stand in the pulpit and when they preached, they didn't have any power in what they said. They preached about Noah, but they said, we don't know if Noah was real. They preached about Adam, but they said, we don't know if there ever was really an Adam and Eve. We don't know if the Garden of Eden was a real place. They preached about Jonah, and they said, now Jonah never really was swallowed by a whale, but there's a lesson for us to learn in this story. And that time they got finished saying everything wasn't real, you're wondering if Jesus was even real. And as I said in a sermon several weeks ago, one of the things that emptied out the churches in Europe was liberal preaching. And yet what happened in America 75 years ago was that America, academia, in my estimation, envious of Europe and wanting to be scholarly and academic, began to bring into the colleges and bring into the universities this secular, liberal, believe-nothing theology that created a generation of people preaching who didn't believe anything, and they go preach it, and now the people they're preaching to, they don't know what to believe, and they don't believe anything, and so they said, well, we won't, what's the point of even going there if it's not even, if, if the preacher doesn't know what he's believing, is saying, he doesn't even believe what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's saying. And as I said in that sermon, liberal preaching is one of the worst things that has ever happened to the church. And it is. There's no doubt about that. But you know, as I've thought about my comments on that day, I stand by them. I've just said the same thing again today. But you can't blame everything that's happened in churches on liberal preachers. Some of it is liberalism in the pulpit, no doubt. Some of it is complacency in the pew. Some of it in Europe and some of it across America is people saying, I'll go to church as long as I've got nothing else to do, as long as it doesn't interfere with my family plans, my ball game plans, my vacation plans, my golf plans, whatever it is, I, if I've got nothing else on the agenda, then I'll go to church. Well, I'll tell you how to empty out a church, have a liberal preacher and have that type of complacency in the pews and let that pass on two or three generations. Children will always do in excess what they saw their parents do in moderation. And if parents were moderately committed to Jesus, children will be committed to Jesus much less, parents have already excused it, 
And so the children, the next generation, would just take it to another level. What is, why are churches closing down? Liberal preaching in the pulpit, complacency in the pews. And I'll tell you why else. My, convic- my opinion, my conviction. One of the reasons churches are struggling today in America is because the spirit of kindness and love has been replaced by a spirit of militants and meanness. And Christians now are becoming more known for taking our stand against things, which we should. We should stand against everything God is against. But even in standing against everything God is against, we have to stand against it in a spirit of love. Jesus said the way the unsaved world, the way the watching world will know that you are Christians, that faith is real, that I can change your life, is not the beauty of your building. It's not the orthodox of your preaching. It is when they see love in your heart. And in our day, militants in Christianity, meanness in Christianity has been legitimized. And the unsaved world is looking at that and listening to that. And they're saying, all you are is somebody who disagrees with with me and you're just as mean to me as I am to you. Only thing is we just disagree. We see the issue the same way, but we're both equally mean. We're both equally militant. But what they're saying in their hearts is, I don't want what you have because you don't have anything different than I have except a different opinion. I think about in the New Testament how people were killed. I think about Jesus, the ultimate example. Here Jesus, sinless, spotless, the Lamb of God, spat upon, beaten, up on that cross. They're laughing at him, nails to his hands and feet. They're mocking him. If you're the Son of God, come down. What would you have said if you would have been Jesus? Well, if I had, I would have been tempted to say, Father, send those angels and zap them dead right now. Not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And those Roman soldiers looked at that and said, what is he saying? Father, forgive them. We've just, look, we've crucified him. He's praying. I think about Stephen, the first martyr of the church. We read about this in the book of Acts. He was stoned because of his faith in Jesus and his faithful witness of Jesus. And as those stones were being hurled at him, upside the head, in the chest, I mean, he's dying. What would you have said? I'd have said, God, this isn't right. Vengeance is yours. Take it on him now. What did Stephen say? He said, Father, don't hold them responsible for this sin. Don't don't lay this sin to their account. Father, he died like Jesus died. And the Bible says as he died, he had the face of an angel. What does that mean? Kindness, love. Even while being stoned, he's praying for his executioners. I think there are many Christians today who if they were being martyred for their faith, either by being stoned or by the guillotine, if they were being killed for their faith, their last words would believe, I'm not backing down for what I believe. And they would say it just like that. Well, you know what? If you're about to be killed, it's obvious you're not backing down. And good for you that we should never back down. I get that. But how different is it for Jesus and Stephen to say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what to do. And here we are in 2021, And our attitude is, I'm not backing down. And we might add after that, a curse be on you and your children for what you're doing. Kindness and love. Listen to me. It is never right to back down from your biblical conviction. I'm the first to say it and I believe it. But let me say this just as strongly. It is never right 
to operate in a spirit of meanness, combativeness, and militance when the commander of our army has instructed us to walk in love. That's what we need in the church today. You know, sometimes you'll see an angry group of people and they're marching for their cause. And thank God that we can all peacefully protest and we can march. And I'm not against any of that. But many times you'll see one of these things going on and they have a cross lifted up. Well, let me tell you something. You marching in something, you better, you lift a cross up. You better make sure that Jesus endorses whatever it is you're standing for. And the second thing I would say to that is even more importantly than that, listen to this. We, (laughs) Jesus doesn't march in our parade. We march in his and we follow him and our commander lived and he died with kindness and love. And so in the heat, what is God doing? He's purifying us. Just like those impurities are burned off that gold. What is he doing? He's burning out of our lives all that combativeness. And he's saying, have your conviction, never back down, but have the face of an angel. Have kindness and love in your heart. Holiness, happiness, kindness. I could go on all day. I'll just mention one more, then we'll stop. Calmness. Here's Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. The boat tossed this way and that way. Water coming in. The disciples scared to death. They're going to drown. Jesus in the back of the boat, sound asleep, not worried at all. Calmness. You know, one of the things he wants to replace, he won't see when the heat is turned up, Now the impurities can be seen. They're no longer hidden. They rise to the surface. And now we can see, wait, instead of holiness, I've been tolerating some sin. Instead of happiness and gladness, I've kind of been complaining and negative and miserable and poor pitiful me and the whole world's against me and and all this crazy thing. And, and, And instead of kindness, I've had combativeness. Instead of calmness, I've had nervousness. I've had anxiousness. I've had all this uneasiness, uptightness, stress. We've all had it. I've had it. I sometimes, but I say, I just sense what God is doing in my life. I just have sensed in recent days that God is surfacing these negative emotions to the top and that God by his loving hand is skimming those things out of the way. Why? So that my faith can be free. Think about this. Our faith, it is possible For you to live free, let me say it again, doubt, worry, fear, anxiety, frustration, being overwhelmed, stressed out. It's too much. I can't do it. You're a child of God. God says, let me heat you up. Let me me expose this to you so I can skim it off the top. Sin. God said, got to get it out. Holiness. Unhappiness, misery, negativity. God says, what is this? Let's get that out. So I'm going to give you the, I want to anoint you with the oil of gladness. Meanness, militance, combativeness. I'll never back down. Well, good, but stand with kindness and love. God said, let me get, keep your conviction, but let's lose some of this. Let's lose some of this abrasiveness and let's replace that with kindness and love. And then how about let me get some of the nervousness out so your life can be characterized by kindness. Here's what I'm saying to you today. How much money would you give if all of that junk could be skimmed out of your life and you could live free of that? Well, most of us here today would say, all the money I have. To live like that? 
not just for a week, but for the rest of my life, to live like that. I want that more than anything. And God says, I want that more than anything for you too because your faith is more precious to me than gold that perishes. But the only way that I can get it out is to allow you to walk through the fire so that stuff can be surfaced, so that you can see it, so that we can deal with it, and so that you can move on, and so that you can say with Job, although I don't know what's happening in my life, I don't understand, where's God? Why has this happened? I can't figure it out. I'm looking for him. I'm looking for an answer, and I haven't found it. I don't know the way that I take, but he does. Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Amen.